Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 and 14 through 21. Listen to God's word for us. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Now today's reading from Matthew recounts a very familiar miracle, a miracle that often warms our hearts and makes us feel real good inside. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's really important to remember the context, to know the context for this story. This follows Jesus learning about the death of his cousin John by beheading, an unfitting end for a prophet so beloved by God and by Jesus. So as we listen to the story, it's important to, rem to remember that Jesus himself is grieving when he encounters the crowds who followed him. Listen now for God's word. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You, you give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. 
Justin found the jigsaw puzzle tucked away on a shelf. It was a simple picture of a beach scene, but its simplicity was very deceiving. When you opened the box, you, he saw quickly that it was hard to tell the difference between the blue sky and the shade of blue water, and there was little to break up the monotony of all the waves except for a few white caps here and there. But Justin was committed. He had this puzzle. It was a rainy Saturday after all, so he settled in at the large coffee table in the family room and got to work. Despite frequent cries of frustration that alarmed his family, Justin persisted with the puzzle because he knew deep down, he knew that every piece in that box had its place and that when he finished it, when he put them all together, he would feel a deep sense of satisfaction and peace. Perhaps this is why when he finished the puzzle six hours later, he shouted out one simple word loud enough for everyone to hear, hallelujah. It's been my experience that most of us approach life like Justin approached that puzzle. We keep trying, despite frequent cries of frustration that alarm our family and friends, we keep trying to put every piece in its proper place. And when everything and everyone is where we think they fit or want them to fit, we pause and give thanks and praise to God, thinking God's goodness, God's mercy is revealed in the order and the symmetry of it all. In order for things to feel at least somewhat manageable on this side of glory, we need the God of all creation to be a logical, thoughtful being who is a step ahead of the rest of us. When faced with the specter of a worldwide pandemic that doesn't seem to want to go away, the reality of another unexpected medical diagnosis, or some other life-altering event. We like to lean on a God who has a plan, or a spreadsheet, or at least a manual of operations. When life gets chaotic and unpredictable and unfamiliar, we want a God who knows where all the pieces fit and what's going to happen next. I'm sure if you've been at church for a while, you've heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000 many times. It's one of the few stories recounted in all four Gospels, and it's a wonderful illustration of God's eagerness to provide for us in every kind of situation. But if we take a few steps back from the story and look at the bigger picture, imagine ourselves there at the time, I think it's fair to wonder what kind of God draws 5,000 people not counting women and little kids, what kind of God draws them out into the wilderness, into the barrenness, with apparently no clear plan to feed them? Not only that, but this seems a really odd time for God to put Jesus on the spot like this. He is, after all, grieving the death of his cousin, John. Perhaps this is why Jesus seems to assume that God has already worked things out with his disciples prior to the crowd's arrival, they don't have to leave. He says, you give them something to eat. He responds to their request 
that the people need to be sent away with the reminder, hey, you've got supplies, right? Give it to them. He probably thought they had a contingency plan in place for things just like this, but of course they didn't. And I can imagine Jesus muttering to himself, here we go again. His plan to grieve, his hopes to get away, his desire to do what he needs to do, what he wants to do, is thwarted once again by the crowds, by the people in need. And he has to improvise once again with the resources at hand. In the book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson tells his story of graduating Harvard Law School to work with individuals on death row. Instead of wishing someone else would solve the problems of the world, he decided to tackle one problem that he had the skills and the passion to solve. But despite his fancy Harvard degree and his passion, he came to quickly realize it was the relationships with the people, the relationships with the people he formed at the nonprofit, at City Hall, and in the prisons that leveraged real change in the lives of over 140 men and women who have been sentenced to die for crimes it turns out they did not commit. In a recent webinar, Mr. Stevenson shared three things he has come to believe are essential to ensuring that everyone, regardless of race, gender, or class, is equally protected under the law. The principles he believes are essential for God's justice to come to pass. The first is proximity. We need to be close to people to understand their situation and advocate for them in the ways they need, in ways that are actually helpful. The second is the power of a narrative, of a story that shapes our understanding of one another and our place in the world. Stories have power, he says. And the third is hope. For without hope, justice, he believes, doesn't stand a chance. Proximity, stories, and hope. Three things that were in abundance that day in the wilderness, and three things that are in abundance with us here today. 5,000 people crammed together in the wilderness with different and divergent stories and backgrounds. 5,000 people, not counting women and children, who were driven to stand with strangers in the middle of nowhere in the hope in the promise that Jesus had something important to say. And he did have something important to say. You give them something to eat. You, all of you, share what you already have received. I believe the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us something really important about God. The God revealed in this passage, in this story, doesn't seem to think ahead or prepare for a variety of scenarios. The God revealed in this story does not have a strategy or a five-point plan to deal with unexpected surprises. The God revealed in this miracle is a God who prefers to improvise with whatever is at hand to do what needs to be done. And more often than not, what is at hand is us. The trap most of us fall into is thinking that God works the way we work. 
Since we are taught to plan, prepare, set goals, protect our resources, and prioritize our needs, we think God works the same way. Thankfully, God does not move through life the same way we do. God doesn't operate on a schedule. God doesn't have a task list for our lives or for the world. God doesn't have any expectations for us that have to be met. And God certainly doesn't prioritize God's self when God's in a pinch. Think of the cross. No, our God loves to improvise, to rely on, to utilize what is most available in the moment, provide whatever is needed most in the moment. God loves to work with simple things like bread and wine and fish and apparently us to make the world a better place. We want God to fix our nation. We want God to quiet our streets. We want God to improve our schools. And in response, each and every time, God keeps trying to draw us closer to one another so we can hear the stories of one another and realize, even if only for a moment, that we all have the same hopes and dreams. One evening, the great pianist Paderewski was scheduled to perform at a great concert hall. In the dressed-up audience of men and women, there was a mother with her very fidgety nine-year-old son. His mother brought her son in hopes that the boy would be inspired to practice the piano more. Good luck with that. So against his own wishes, he had come to please his mother. As she turned before the concert started to talk to some friends, the boy slipped away from her side. And without much notice from the sophisticated audience, the boy climbed the stage and sat down at the stool, staring wide-eyed at the black and white keys. He put his tiny fingers on the keyboard. And of all things, he began to play chopsticks. The roar of the crowd was hushed instantly by hundreds of frowning faces turning his direction. An angered audience began jeering at the boy, imploring for him to be taken quickly from the stage. Now backstage, Paderewski overheard the sounds out front and quickly put together what was happening. Hurriedly, he grabbed his coat and rushed onto the stage Without one word of announcement, he stooped over the boy, reached around both sides, and began to improvise a counter melody to harmonize and enhance the tune. As the two of them played together, Paderewski kept whispering in the boy's ear, keep going, don't quit, keep on playing, don't quit, I'm right here with you, don't stop playing. And the crowd was mesmerized. What you have in you right now, what we have in us right now, is all that God needs to feed, clothe, inspire, strengthen, and support not only us, but the world as well. I know we like to think Jesus is the one who multiplied those loaves and fishes that day, but what if, what if the real miracle was all those people sharing with each other all they had brought with them that day? What if the real miracle of this story is a group of strangers found a way to work with one another to ensure everyone had what they needed? We love, 
we love to put it all on God. But every time we do, God reminds us that God prefers to work with us. God values us that much, so much, enough to entrust us with one another. When things don't go according to plan, when the pieces don't fit, when the music sounds off key, God loves to show the world what God can do through people. God loves to use people from across the political, religious, and cultural spectrums to surprise us and others with God's amazing grace, which is incredible news when you think about it because it means that instead of spending so much time trying to ensure our lives are going according to some master plan that all the pieces somehow fit, we can take a deep breath and pause and notice who it is God is calling us closer to, to discover with them what we've all been looking for all along. Every Sunday morning for about the last 10 or 15 years, I've welcomed visitors to worship in the churches I've served, saying something like, we are now different because you are here, and for that we give God thanks and praise. And in every congregation I've served in that time, someone has commented on this practice and not really in a positive light. They, they always tell me how frustrated they are that I seem to be prioritizing the potential for change each visitor brings over and against the well-loved traditions of that community that newcomers will need to embrace to fit in. You know, and I get it. It's a fair point. I'll be honest. I do prioritize change over the status quo. That is my personal and theological bias But it wasn't until recently in a conversation that I realized why I've been so stubborn about giving thanks publicly for the change each new member symbolizes when they enter into a sanctuary. I don't think a church transforms because new members come in with grandiose plans to change the place. If they're joining the church, they likely prefer much of the traditions and practices that are already in place. Now, I think a church changes with each new person who calls it home because our God loves to work with whatever is at hand. The church changes with the influx of new people because God works with the gifts and talents and passions of whoever shows up to make the church and the world a better place. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think God's will for us and for the world is a puzzle that we need to figure out and put together to find joy and peace. God's will for us in the world is simply to give us what we need, when we need it most, using what we already have at hand, which more often than not is one another. The truly amazing miracle in this passage might not be the multiplication of loaves and fishes at the hands of Jesus, That's hardly impressive for someone who could exercise demons and raise someone from the dead. The truly amazing miracle in this passage is that a mass of strangers, after listening to and being with Jesus, after being in close proximity with one another, were willing to share what they had with one another, regardless of their party affiliation, their social status, their race, or their familial connections. They were willing to draw close to one another, 
to listen to one another and to live into the hope that God was eager to give them everything they needed from one another. I mean, imagine a world, imagine a city, imagine a church like that. Amen.